Let's continue worship with a reading from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated once you say hello to someone. Uh, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're with us. So uh, we are going to, I'm going to read you a few things that Jesus said. Uh, they are, um, I think, to us, not shocking, uh, but to most who heard them in his day uh, were extremely so- shocking, and they're going to launch us into our conversation that we're going to get into today, okay? So let me just read you a few things that Jesus said coming out of mostly the book of John, and then we'll get into it. John eight fifty one. truly, truly, I say to you, all of these things are Jesus speaking. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you're a Christian in this room, none of those things probably shocked you. Uh, My suspicion is if you are not a Christian in this room, uh, maybe some of those things were a bit shocking to you uh, because of the nature of those claims. Uh, If you had your brain on (laughs) when you're listening to them, right? Uh, Today, I want to have a pretty large conversation about Christianity as a whole. Uh, and this disclaimer, a lot of the points we'll hit today are pointed out to me, were pointed out to me by, by Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God. But what I want to talk about is one thing that many people have a problem with when it comes to religion and Christianity especially. Um, so if you are in this room and you are a skeptic, man, so am I. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you're here. And this conversation is for you. Uh, a lot of times, what we're going to talk about today, this issue, um, this stops people from ever considering Jesus or Christianity or church. They find it repulsive, narrow, outdated, even a form of bigotry and hatefulness. And it's this. The exclusive claims of Christianity as absolute truth and the only way to life. Now, if you're alive and have a pulse today, you know there's a whole lot, that's, that's a pregnant statement, okay? Absolute truth, exclusive claims. The objection many people have to things like this is, is right here. Let me just give it to you, all right? How can any one religion claim they have found the only way to life or to heaven, right? That they have the one truth, that their religion is any better than any other religion. Like, how arrogant 
they'd say, right? How, ex- how ethnocentric and exclusive. How you're telling me that Christianity is right and every other religion then is wrong, right? So in a pluralistic, multi-ethnic, truth is relative type society in which we live, this idea is absolutely unbearable for many people. It's overbearing, it's outdated, and how can you be so obtuse, get with the times? So you'll have those outside of Christianity saying, how ridiculous, how arrogant, how can you say that you have the one truth no one else has? And if we're honest, which we're in church, so I know we're already at a disadvantage with honesty, uh, there's plenty of people inside the church who are at best uncomfortable with this idea and at worst, maybe a little embarrassed, maybe actually at worst willing to attempt to mutilate Christianity and take out those offensive, exclusive claims so that the masses can, it's more palatable to the masses. Okay, are we chatting? You with me? I think there's plenty of Bible-believing, right, Christians who are a little uncomfortable with this. Have you ever been cornered by someone and, and they've said, are you telling me that Christianity claims that it's true and all the other ones are wrong, that you have the real truth and no one else has it, right? It's very easy to begin to shy away and say, well, I mean, you know, I don't know about that. And really all religions, they kind of teach the same thing. And isn't the point of religion just kind of social cohesion, right? And don't they all just kind of say, well, love each other, right? And of course, many, of Christ- many Christians, y'all, have, have really kind of agreed with this. And they've, and they've said, you know what? It is a little arrogant to say that we have the exclusive thing. And aren't we supposed to be humble as Christians and have decided, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on all the things that just everyone can agree on as Christians. Dude, this is happening, has happened, will continue to happen in churches and amongst Christians. They'll say, you know what? Jesus and Christianity, it's just about just be kind. I mean, it's all the same thing. Just be kind to people. Listen, Jesus has lots of lovely things to say about loving people, right? His exclusive claims about divinity, uh, you know, people probably added that in later, right? And those are so divisive, and we don't want to be divisive. So, so this is historically, I mean, this is what they'll say. They'll, I'm, I'm giving you their argument. Historically, they'll say this. Dude, religion is horribly divisive. And you say, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, they're right. And they'll say, and then religion, it breeds this kind of superiority where you think you have the one truth and they don't have the, and then everyone, they like cluster up and they look down their nose at the other religion and you say, yeah, yeah, that's, you're right. Religion does that, you know, in bloodshed in the name of religion, right? I mean, come on, I'll go to the histories, right? And government's trying to squash religion and then religion fighting religion and then, and it's bloodshed, right? They're so divisive and, oh, you know, and if the war is not religiously based, whoever's in charge, they're gonna find a religion, they're gonna hijack it for the, yeah. So they'll say this, okay, no more divisive, exclusive claims. I don't want people feeling left out. We accept everyone, we love everyone. We're focusing on the common things that every religion talks about, which of course, dude, there's overlap. There is, there is some overlap, not in all places, but there is some, right? And it really does sound lovely from the outset for many, many Christians. So today, we're going to take a step back and look at some of these positions and arguments. And I want to start with the response within the church, logically think about it as Christians, and we try to conform the Bible to our lives instead of our lives to the Bible, what happens, right? What happens, that's a big sentence, you might need to sit on that for a second, when you try to conform the Bible to your life instead of your life to the Bible, when you try to force fit biblical ideas into your modern understanding of the universe, 
right? We're going to sit with that, and then we're going to think of some of the objections that those outside the church, those secular people have when we talk about exclusive claims of truth. Now, I know this is a little philosophical, which I can't even say that word, and some of you just fell asleep when I said that word, but some of you might be excited, so so let me pray for us, um, and then we'll jump in, okay? Let me pray. God, Father, would you help us in our day and in our time um, to know and love you with all of our hearts. God, would you continue to reveal your nature to us, your power to us, your love to us, so that our lives would begin to reflect that power and love and grace to the world around us. God, make us real Christians. Have mercy, God. Help us follow you with all of our heart, leaving nothing behind. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So what happens when Christians begin to distort biblical ideas to make them more palatable to our age, what happens when the contrast between biblical Christianity and the time in which we live, our culture, our society, the ideologies that have dominance in our thinking, what happens when the contrast between these things are so bright, so stark, and unsettling and disturbing that Christians begin to say, listen, if we're going to keep this thing alive, we got to knock off some hard edges. Hmm? Modern people are not going to go for this idea hmm? of sin, absolute truths. Come on, it's 2022, right? Well, a, a couple things are going to happen. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Right? Number one, when you come to the Bible and you pour it through the filter of your modern understanding of the cosmos, Right? Your modern understanding of how the world works, you have to admit one really simple thing. You have become the authority because you got your razor out and you've cut out things that you're uncomfortable with. Dude, you're the authority and there's nothing for it, guys. You don't submit to the Bible, you're making the Bible submit to you. You're not submitting to God, you're making God submit to you. You're God. When you begin, to take authority over the Bible and say, these are the things that doesn't fit in with our framework, and I'm going to push it to the side because I'm a, dude, you are God now. You've not, you've not submitted to his authority, no matter how hard you want to refute this. Dude, it's, it's, there's nothing for it. But here's the deal, dude. We're a product of our time. The way you think about life, that's been handed to you by your culture. It's just true. Your family, your friends, your workplace are all working with fundamental assumptions about life. And when we take those fundamental assumptions of our modern era and we pour the Bible through it and we let our modern thinking filter out the Bible, dude, you've become God. I mean, it's so obvious. I don't think I need to spend so much time on it. But secondly, what you have to see is one of the problems with this approach of taking out things that we don't like in the Bible, and let's take that out and I like this, let's just focus on this, is you end up with an essentially a neutered, impotent, anemic faith. This is what happens logically. That no longer, that may no longer have the power to achieve what it claims it achieves. Salvation. Is it possible that your modern filter that you are using, that we can't help but use because we're a product of our time, that when we filter the Bible and begin to say, well, that doesn't fit, and I don't understand that, and sin is really outdated, and blah, 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 and we're all broken, and no one likes that, you know, when we begin to take out those bits, is it possible that you're taking out the bits that actually have the power to transform you? Like, what if the filter is mutilating your faith so much that it loses all relevance because you're taking out the bits that actually make a difference in your life? Like, that's a possibility, would it be any wonder when your faith feels irrelevant and impotent? No, it would make perfect sense. 
Because you're trying to apply all the benefits of spiritual health before ever acknowledging spiritual sickness. Of course, it's not going to feel relevant to you. So let's, let's give you an example. Let's give you an example, okay? Sin and repentance. Everyone loves that. Let's just talk about that for the rest. No, right? Everyone loves that. We're, like being, you're a sinner. You need to repent. Like some of you just, right? Just when I said that, right? No, listen. In the modern era, that's the first thing that goes in the chopping block. Right? People aren't sinners. Come on. It's 2022. People are lovely. You be you. Live your truth, man. Right? So Christians say, we got to talk- stop talking about this, y'all. Right? This alienation from God. All that stuff is just, uh, it's not helping. Okay, but what happens? What happens when you do that? Let's just think logically about it. The Bible says the problem with the world is sin. So if we take that out, then what's the problem with the world? What is it? And then, how do we fix it? If we don't know, the, the problem, the solution, the, those are related. So if you take the problem out, this is what happens. And this is what happens in many Christians. And this is what happens when we think, all right, about what the problem with the world is. Stay with me. I know it's heady today. We begin to default to what our society says the problem with the world is. And if you're a Christian in this room, let me tell you something. The problem with the world is not Democrats. Can I say that to you? I, I, was, I was worried someone was going to clap because they were going to be like, yeah, the problem with the world is... No, dude, it's not Democrats. Listen, the problem with the world isn't Republicans either. If you're on the other side of that, I knew this was stirring up. Just, okay, but listen. Hey, come on, let's chat, y'all. Past five years. Past five years. Right? All the chaos and the craziness, and we're saying, what's the problem? The Bible hasn't has something to say about the problem. And it's not politics. And it's not the educational system. And it's not rich people. And it's not the class system. There's plenty of people who would say religion's the problem with the world, right? But if the, po- the point is, if we filter out sin and repentance, now you have to come up with your own ideas of the problem and solution in the world. And of course, if the problem changes, then the solution changes right? And then when we begin talking as Christians about Jesus forgiving us and dying, and dying for us, we say, saving us? Saving us from what? Well, I guess Democrats, <laughs> right? Are we chatting? Come on, right? If the pro- what's the problem? The Bible has things to say about it. Are you listening? Or are you letting the culture around you convince you what the problem with the world is? The Bible is going to lead us in this, guys, and it's going to keep us dead sinners. It's going to keep us people who are bearing fruit. But a lot of times we just get washed over in the society of our culture, and we begin to think that the problems are the problems. Listen, if politics are the problem, then the solution is political revolution. Some of you are like, say the word, pastor. (laughs) Right? Right. Oh, we're not going to do that? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. If, If the problem with the world is wealth then we need a social revolution. If the problem with the world is education, we need an educational revolution. If the problem with the world is sin and alienation from God, we need a Savior who can forgive and at the same time restore us to that God, right? We need a revolution of grace, a revolution of grace. Don't don't detach. A revolution of grace in our hearts. That's what we need. That's what the Bible's going to say. It's not politics, not education. It's not class system. You need a grace revolution. When we brush sin under the rug, we think it's just a small omission. And now people will begin to get on board because we're not saying those offensive things. But now when we say Jesus loves you and saves you, it's really confusing for them. Saves you from what? And then the cross becomes a total enigma. He had to die? Why? Right? At the very center, the very center of Christianity, 
becomes irrelevant when we take sin out. When we reject what the problem is, people are really confused. And then we don't know how to help people, right? Guys, if you're a Christian, I love you. But listen, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And if you're taking out the bits you don't like, you're not a Christian. You're the authority, man. You've become God. You're not submitting to his rule in your life. And it would not surprise me that your faith feels really impotent because you're taking out the bits that make it powerful. You're taking out the bits that actually address the issue, right? At the root of this, in, in the Christians, inside the Christian heart, th- at the root of this issue, in my opinion, it comes down to arrogance and cowardice. How's that? Well, it sounds really lovely and humble to say, no more divisive, exclusive claims. Let's focus on the common things. But when Christians do this, what's really happening is on the one hand, we're showing that we really think we know more than God. Hmm? We know the real problem. We know the real solution. And it's remarkably arrogant. And on the other hand, it's cowardice because we care to be accepted by men more than accepted by God. It looks humble, but in reality, it is arrogant and it is cowardice. And we could just talk more about that, but let's move on to the secular objections, this idea of Christian exclusive claims, okay? Well, like we said, when you begin to say things like there is absolute truth, and you begin to to, um, communicate the exclusive claims of Jesus uh, to secular minds, um, what what you have, a very popular secular response, and it's kind of a peacekeeping response, and, and this is more about religion as a whole, when they think one religion claims the truth, A very secular response is this. They say this. Listen, no one religion has all the truth. You heard this. Yes, you've heard this. Okay. And they say things like this. All of them are equally true. They just get different snippets of God. They all teach the basic same thing. And if all you religious people could just acknowledge this, we could avoid conflict and wars. And you'd stop thinking you're superior to other people. And we can just get along. And the picture they explain it with, and you've probably heard, if anyone's ever been in religion 101, you've heard this picture, is a blind man, blind man with elephant. You guys heard this one? Three blind men. This represents religion. And then the elephant represents God. And this they say, they say, listen, this is one of the pictures. The other picture is a mountain, which you start at different points all around the mountain, but you're all going up to the same point. It's just different paths at the same point, okay? The, the, the blind man in the elephant picture goes something like this. They say, God's like a big elephant, and he's so big that, you know, and of course we're blind, but we can't get the whole, all of them. So all religions, they just get different parts. One blind man walks up to the trunk, the front of the elephant, and he says, ah, God is like a hose-type thing. And it's flexible when it moves around. That's one, that's one guy. The other guy, other blind guy, stumbles to the side of the elephant. He says, no, 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 no. God is big, looming wall type thing. And it's kind of hairy, and it's like rounded, and it's just floating in the universe. And then one poor sucker, the blind guy, gets the back leg. And he says, all you guys are wrong. God is like a tree trunk. He's short and round and stout and immovable. And you can get your arms around it, but man, it smells horrible, right? <laughs> and, and then they would say, listen, this is religion and this is God. All of them are right and all of them are sort of wrong. All the religions are true in a way, but they're just getting a little bit of God. And if we just put them together, we focus on the commonality, people will stop fighting peace on earth. Okay, well, let's, I mean, let's just be objective about it. Oh, that makes sense. 
man, religion does make people fear superior to others, and maybe if religious people would just chill out on the whole exclusive claims and be more humble, and they would all get a slice, and it, the world would be a better place. I think it was Leslie Newbegin who pointed out this, about this idea about God and religions. And he said he'd heard this argument for years, and at one point he realized an underlying assumption to this argument that in reality is more arrogant and exclusive than any of the religious claims, which is this. This position that all religions basically teach the same thing, they're all slices of the same pie and we're all getting a little bit of it. This position claims a higher absolute vantage point. In this paradigm, all religions are blind except you. You see it clearly. So see, that position has asserted a vantage point of absolute authority from which it relativizes all the other claims of absolute truth. And it's taking a m much more exclusive position that, all, that they see it all completely and totally, right? You see the irony. This position is based on a cultural pluralistic approach, which says it has the one ultimate truth about God, which leads us to another problem with saying absolute claims or, uh, about God or truth are exclusive and arrogant. This is another problem with this idea. When you say that, uh, to say that you have the one truth is arrogant and it's exclusive, okay? Well, here's the problem with this. Every single one of us, uh, religious or not, are functioning every day of our life with absolute exclusive truth claims. Now, I know this is super philosophical. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, whether you've given it any thoughts, you all have a narrative from which you live your life out of that assumes things about life. And it guides you, okay? You assume things about right and wrong. What is right and what is wrong? You assume things about ultimate meaning about certain things, okay? And many of them are unprovable statements of faith, whether you're religious or not. So let me give you an example. Most modern people would work with the assumption that human life is more precious than cabbage. It's a modern, right? Most modern people would say, you can kill, you can withhold water from a line of cabbage. Fine. No one eats cabbage. Who cares? My wife's like cringing right now. Oh, the cabbage. Right? It's a bummer, but it's fine because I don't need that. It's gross. I'm talking about non-religious, okay? If you have a line of humans and say, we are going to withhold water until they die of dehydration or organ failure, whether you are Christian or not, everyone's going to say, no, 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 no. You can't do that. That's wrong. But listen, from the secular perspective, you have no logical grounds to defend that statement. Why? If we are the result of random biological processes emerging from chaos, dude, me and you are just lucky blobs of organic matter. And Darwinian survival of the fittest is the way. And if practically, if they die, well, that's more food for us. And they're probably genetically uh, you know, dysfunctional, so we're going to clean out the bloodline. Y'all, eugenics makes perfect sense in the secular mind, right? Purify the bloodline. Read some history, man. They're, they're, the point is, from the secular perspective, believing human life is more valuable than cabbage is a statement of faith. That, for the most part, is logically unprovable. It's an exclusive claim that we'd say, if you don't believe this, you're a caveman. 
And all of us work with assumptions like this, all right, that are largely unprovable. Let me give you another example because I know this is a heady thing. What's the meaning and point of marriage? What's the meaning and point of marriage? So no matter where you're at on the spectrum, you have a, a faith. You have an idea about what the point of getting married is, right? You have assumptions about what is marriage and why should I get married. If the point of marriage is personal happiness and emotional gratification, if that's the assertion, if that's your exclusive claim about what marriage is for, right? First of all, you cannot defend that logically, okay? But second of all, it changes everything about marriage. Now divorce makes perfect sense. If you wake up one day and think, actually having sex with that person would make me more happy, well, of course divorce makes sense. Can you scientifically prove that the purpose and meaning of marriage is happiness and emotional gratification? No. It's a faith claim. And guess what? It's just as exclusive as any other claim. And it's been handed to you by your time and culture. And when you believe that is what's ultimately true about marriage, that it's about my personal happiness and about emotional gratification, guess what? You will feel superior to people who still hold to Christian traditional views of marriage. And you will say, with an air of religious elitism that rivals the Pharisees, traditional views of marriage are so outdated and antiquated. Only regressive bigots can hold to those views. You cannot prove that. That's a faith claim about what the meaning of marriage is. It's an exclusive claim, and it's unprovable, and it's called culture wars. It's lovely, right? Christian or not, we have assumptions about these things, and that they themselves are exclusive claims. And if other people don't believe them, we look down our nose at them. You understand what I'm saying? We all have them. They're all exclusive, and for many parts, for many of us, they're absolute. If someone disagrees with us, we dismiss them, and they create a sense of, I'm better than you, because I know true reality. I know what the purpose is. I know the best way to be human. So if it's true that modern ideas are just as absolute and exclusive and divisive as religious ideas, and we all have them, then Tim Keller, Tim Keller poses a question. Is there any exclusive beliefs that can produce the kind of people who are full of love and grace even for those they disagree with? even for those who think and act and live drastically different from them? Is there a set of exclusive beliefs and claims that would produce a kind of person who loves people who are different than them, right? That doesn't produce a superiority complex that with people that you disagree with, right? And it astounds me how many Christians miss the essence of the gospel here. Don't check out on me, man. Christianity is totally unique. Because the claim of Christianity is its founders, its founder, Jesus, right, claimed to be God himself. Okay, that's a big part of it, right? But what did he come to do? To die for his enemies. This is the claim of Jesus. And what was he doing while they were killing him? Praying for their forgiveness. At the very center of faith, at the very center of our faith, is Jesus who claimed to be God in the flesh, the only way to the Father, the only door to life, the only real bread and drink in the universe, dying for his enemies. Let me read you a part of Keller's book real quick, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up with a few last thoughts. Most people in our culture believe that if there is a God, we can relate to him and go to heaven through leading a good life. Let's call this the moral improvement view. Christianity teaches the very opposite. In the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so we can merit salvation. Rather, 
He comes and forgives and saves us through his life and death in our place. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their, fa their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. Christian believers are not accepted by God because of their moral performance, wisdom, or virtue, but because of Christ's work on their behalf. Most religions and philosophies of life assume that one's spiritual status depends on your religious attainments. This naturally leads adherents to feel superior to those who don't believe as they believe and behave as they behave. The Christian gospel, in any case, will never have that effect. Why? Because at the very heart of their view of reality was a man who died for his enemies, praying, their, praying for their forgiveness. Reflection on this could only lead to a radically different way of dealing with those who were different from them. It meant they could not act in violence and oppression towards their opponents. He goes on to point out one of the great paradoxes of the first century. Stay with me. Which was the Greco-Roman religions were fantastically pluralistic. Greco-Roman religions had a God for everything. It was all-inclusive. You have a God for this? Awesome. Bring it in. You have a God for health? You have a God for crops? You have a God for sex? Whatever you want, right? The sky's the limit. They had a religion that perfectly fit the pluralistic air of our day. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's all good. Everyone's religion is right. You can have your own God. And this is the question he poses. Did that philosophy of life create peace and harmony and inequality and kindness in the Roman society? Not in the least. Not in the least. In fact, Roman society was extremely violent and brutal, right? Remember, this is the society that came up with things like crucifixion and the gladiator games where people watched people shredded to pieces by live animals. No, in Roman society, actually, they despised the poor, and they were brutal to the marginalized. The ancient world treated women as property. They forced marriage. But do you know how the exclusive claims of Jesus... Do you know what the exclusive claims of Jesus did in that society? It created an, a group of people in which slave and free ate at the same table. It created a group of people that men and women and people of different races and classes came together at the same table and saw each other as equals in the kingdom. Sons and daughters of the king, whether slave or free, it was the exclusive claims of Christ which created that community. So inclusive, that community was so inclusive, so full of love and grace and humility that it was scandalous to the Romans. They looked at it as they couldn't believe you could eat at the same table with a servant. It's absurd, right? Read Ephesians 5 and 6, and I want you to notice something in Ephesians 5 and 6, which was totally absurd for their day. In Ephesians 5 and 6, it's dealing with husbands and wives, slaves and masters and children and parents. In that day, we have, we have um, Plato writing about social structures in that day, right? And you know, he doesn't even dress those people. You know, the only person worth addressing in the ancient world is men. You just address the men. They, they're the ones that, do you know who Paul addresses in Ephesians 5 and 6 first? Women, children, and slaves. It was absolutely crazy for them. Just the structure of the letter gives dignity and worth to those that society had pushed to the sides and said, your opinion doesn't matter anymore. The, the Jesus people movement created a society that was so inclusive, so full of love, it was scandalous for the day. And you know what it rested on? The exclusive claims of one man who said, I am the bread of life. 
I am the only door into life. And when they submitted to that claim, it produced in them such love and compassion and grace that all other societal structures that cause oppression and divisiveness were banned. It just out, cast them out of their heart, all by the power in the name of Jesus. Guys, this is, come on, that's cool, right? Dude, I love the Bible. You gotta, you gotta pay attention. Ephesians 5 and 6, go read it. And see who Paul addresses first. He addresses the, the marginal in society, right? The gospel obliterates any possibility of looking down your nose at anyone else. And not only does it do that, it compels us to love and sacrifice for those who disagree with us, who even hate us, who may even be doing violence against us because we follow Jesus, who prayed for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. The gospel changes everything. No other religion can do that. Dude, no other religion gets close to that, right? It's so interesting to me that so many non-believers say things like, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I just have a problem with the church. I have a problem with Christians because hypocrites. And I think that's probably because you've never read the New Testament because Jesus makes audacious, exclusive claims about himself. I am the door. I am the bread, right? And dude, no other religion comes with... Moses and Abraham, Judaism, Moses and Abraham, they didn't say that kind of craziness. You think Muhammad said that kind of stuff? No. Confucius, not even close, man. All other religions say, if you want a way to life, I'll push you to the way to life. Here's, do these things, and then maybe you'll get, Jesus says, if you want life, come to me. I am the way. This is the claims of Jesus, right? And of course, Lewis has the quote about He's either what he says he is, or he's a complete lunatic, because no good moral teacher would say the kind of things Jesus said. If you're here today and have never come to a resolve about the claims of Jesus personally, like you've never surrendered to his authority and maybe never even thought about his claim that he was God, I just want to give you time to personally respond to that. So right where we're at, let's just pray before we come to the table. Let's just pray together. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to, in your heart, Make a decision about what you think about Jesus. Come to a crossroads. Jesus, would you bring us right now um, to a place of decision about who you are? Father, I pray for the person in here who has been kind of skirting around the fact and thinking about it and wondering if you are who you say you are. God, would you have mercy on their hearts right now and cause faith to rise up in them? Would you gift them with faith? God, I pray for those Christians in this room who are struggling with who you are in their lives. God, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you show yourself to be the only true bread in the universe? God, would you show yourself to be the way into life? Not, the, not the, all the paraphernalia around Christianity, not all the, the do's and the don'ts, not the, the habits and the patterns. The, the, those are great, but those don't give life, God. Only you and you alone give life. God, so in the places that our hearts are barren, God, in the places that our hearts feel dead, where wilderness, it just feels like, we're disconnected from you. God, would you help us see that part of the issue might be our unwillingness to submit to your authority? So right now, man, just if, if you want to submit to the authority of Jesus, I just want you to say this one word to him. Just, just say yes, Lord. Two words, I guess. <laughs> just in your heart. Just say, God, I, I want to acknowledge you for who you are personally in my life. Come, God.
me just say um, and repeat one more time that um, Jesus did not come to save you from uh, political opponents. He did not come to save you from difficult circumstances. Um, he did not come to save you from a rough patch. He came to save you from your sin. And if you would like to step into that today, we have people that would love to pray with you. If you would like to say, you know what, there is something about this that's ringing true in my heart, and I do feel like there's something wrong inside me that I think maybe Jesus could remedy, come forward, man, and let's let someone pray for you. We have people that love you and trust you, that, oh, that we trust, that can pray with you about this, if you want to say yes to that today. Let me pray. Jesus, God, would you mobilize us as a church, Lord? God, would you um, empower us to begin to be your hands and feet to our community? God, in, in doing so, we demonstrate the kindness and grace of God, and we proclaim the gospel. Give us strength and courage, God, uh, to boldly walk in your truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have an excellent week, guys. See you next time.